Welcome to the inaugural podcast brought to you by the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching in collaboration with IT&I and Media Services. This is the first in what I anticipate will be a series of podcasts on topics of interest to the university community, meaning its students, its staff, and faculty. Upcoming podcasts include a program that will be recorded in front of a live audience on the stage of Ives Concert Hall. Um, The title of the upcoming podcast is The Objectivity Question, Navigating Bias in the Classroom, another hot topic. And so we invite the community to join us in Ives Concert Hall um, for that podcast. News of that will be available online. This and all podcasts will be posted to SoundCloud, to iTunes, and in CELT's Media Space Library with links to the brand spanking new CELT website. Our topic today is information literacy in the age of so-called fake news. I think that we can all agree that the topic remains timely. Indeed, in the internet age, questions about how best to foster information literacy have dominated college curricula for years. Rarely does a day pass when the relationship between literacy and fake news doesn't find airtime or column inches, and I suspect my guest today will provide numerous details. Um, on On a related note, Google just released its search tool designed to identify the level of truth in websites. I'm I'm not sure that that doesn't mean we're relinquishing the responsibility for critical thinking to, you know, corporate overlords, but, well, I'm sure we'll come back to that at some point today. Our guests today in alphabetical order are Dr. Avril Maines, Professor of Political Science and Conflict Studies, also the coordinator and co-chair of the Hancock Student Leadership Program and the director of the Conflict Resolution Project. Avril. Hi. Good morning. John Roach, who's an assistant professor of journalism in the Department of Writing, Linguistics, and Creative Process. Hi, John. Hi. And Tom Schmiedel, public services librarian and the librarian here at Western for Chemistry, Education and Educational Psychology, Health Promotion and Exercise, and Nursing. Hi, Tom. Hi there. Glad to be here. And I just want to thank you all for joining me today. I'm really excited by the potential for this opportunity to make sure that our discussions find a wider audience and a longer shelf life. Um, Although I suspect with topics like the ones we're addressing in upcoming podcasts, um, the shelf life will be everlasting. So I'm going to start with a general question to you all, and you can answer in whatever order you choose. Um, From the perspective of your own discipline, I'd like you to define information literacy and fake news and at least begin the discussion of, of the challenges of fostering information literacy in the 21st century. Actually, I'm looking right at you, Avril, so you, you want to begin? Thanks for having me, Leslie. This is such a timely topic. In fact, uh, 60 Minutes had a, a piece on this last week and the Christian Science Monitor the week before. It's really such an important topic today. Uh, as far as the definition of uh, information literacy, what I think I'd like to do is leave that to my librarian colleague because he provided with the, the best. He provided me with a definition that I think is really a great one. Um, so I think I will leave that to him so that I don't steal his thunder on that. Um, but in, as far as uh, definitions of fake news, for me, it's an intentionality of deception. Um, And yet, for me, the idea that fake news, it's not new. Uh, It has been around in many iterations for really many generations. You know, yellow journalism, um, examples of Russian disinformation. Uh, My father, speaking to him about this recently, reminded me of this concept of swift boating, uh, which is something that happened actually when John Kerry was running for a presidency in 2004, uh, when in fact a group of veterans 
um, questioned his um, his military record, and they were swift boaters, and this term of swift boating uh, came about. Uh, you know, even propaganda, um, opinion. You know, there are. Uh, you know, there's. I think my uh, com colleague will talk about Hollywood's examples. So fake news is definitely not a, a new phenomenon. In fact, even examples going back as far as John Adams and the Jefferson uh, race, um, certainly during the Nixon administration. So there are many, many examples of it. But for me, what really defines fake news, along with some of these other concepts, is the intentionality of deception. Thanks. John? I think Averill did an excellent uh, job in uh, presenting what fake news is. I also uh, will defer to Tom because I um, completely concur with uh, the definition that he provided us before we went on the air. Um, I also think it's very interesting that uh, just in looking at uh, Googling fake news over the weekend, that there are fake news sites about fake news. Um, so you can uh, get articles uh, that are supposed to be from uh, reputable sources um, that give complete uh, false information about the history, the definition of fake news. Um, it, 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 you talked about um, Google and Facebook uh, instituting a new, uh, I think it's uh, fact check is what they're calling it. Um, but, you know, that's just another layer of technology. How are we supposed to uh, trust technology? And if you're saying, you know, it's up to us to be critical consumers of the news, uh, then that just means we need to check the fact check. Um, but uh, also interesting uh, is very uh, recently, within the last 48 hours, is the Associated Press uh, issued their own uh, uh, reiteration of what uh, fake news is. And to clarify that it is uh, intentionally, uh, intentionally falsified news reports, that it is not, uh, and the term fake news should not be applied to disputed uh, news of disputed opinion or fact. That means we, if we don't agree, necessarily agree with um, the, the news that's uh, there, um, that's being presented, that doesn't mean um, it is fake news. Um, there is one truth, there's separate opinions, but there is one truth. It's a verifiable uh, quantita quantitative uh, entity. Um, and as journalists and as uh, purveyors of the news, we should be looking to uh, get to the truth. You know, there is no such thing, although it's been used without getting political in any way, there is no such thing as alternative truth. There is alternative opinion, there is um, alternative perception, um, but there is one truth and uh, our perception of that truth might change. Um, for, for me personally, um, uh, I long before uh, the recent swell of fake news, although as uh, Averill said, fake news has been around, you know, I'll, I can talk about it later, dating back long, long before uh, even the printing press existed. Um, our founding fathers, many of our founding fathers were uh, guilty of fake news. Um, but uh, being critical consumers of news is one of the most important uh, fundamentals of being a, a student journalist and a professional journalist and it's something that I've stressed in my class uh, and just it's just turned up turned that up a couple of notches uh, in recent semesters because of uh, the world around us 
<clears throat> Thank you, John. Uh, we'll come back to strategies, classroom strategies for mm -hmm. uh, for educating ourselves and our students about how to negotiate fake news. But before we come to that, um, I'll ask that Tom fill us in on the definition of information literacy. Sure. In my work as a librarian, I've come across several definitions of information literacy, most of which are similar. The uh, American Library Association has information literacy competency standards for higher education, which came out in 2000. They've replaced that in 2015 with the framework for information literacy for higher education. Those are the two main ones that I'm that I work with. Uh, others, the American Association of Colleges, co of Colleges and Universities has an information literacy rubric, which they have uh, information literacy outputs for. The Connecticut State Colleges and Universities uh, have a rubric for continuing educate for continuing learning and information literacy with other outputs, which is similar to what we have here at West Co Western Connecticut State University with our information literacy competency. I'm going to just read the definition from the. Um, American Library Association standards from 2000, which sums up what uh, information literacy is. It's a set of abilities requiring individuals to recognize when information is needed and have the ability to locate, evaluate, and use effectively the needed information. When they put this together in 2000, they had five standards that go along with it, along with 22 performance indicators, which we won't get into here, but basically, uh, the five standards are to determine the nature and extent of the information needed, um, access the, the needed information effectively, uh, evaluate the information and its sources critically. And that to me is the most important thing when we're talking about fake news is evaluating the information. Uh, also to use the information effectively to accomplish a specific task and then understand many of the economic, legal, and social issues surrounding the use of information. And that gets into the issues of copyright, bias, and things of that nature. Also, the cost of, of information. When it comes to fake news, I think of, in terms of how much evidence is there for what you're reading, what the news is. It can have very, various forms. There's various degrees of fakeness, as I would say. There's exaggeration, partial truth, withholding truth, manipulation, and editing such that the story that gets communicated is not what was really, really intended by the author. Uh, on one end of the spectrum, we have complete falsehoods, complete fabrications with no evidence at all. It might be the creation of a fake story, but it could also be just passing on that story. So people who don't evaluate information and pass that on are playing a role in that. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have solid evidence. We have articles that are written that have solid evidence. Uh, that can be verified by looking at the author, the publication. You trace it back to uh, to the original source, and it's solid. Thank you. So it starts to seem sort of like a wormhole when we look at websites that are fake news websites about fake news, and with the with the volume of information that comes at us every day and for which we are responsible as citizens in the United States, um, I think that strategies for teaching about how to confront and um, educate about li information literacy and fake news are you know, an important part of what we all do in our classrooms. So I'd like to open the discussion on those strategies specifically. How do we deal with this as librarians and as faculty members in our own discipline um, to make sure that all of our students have the best foundation possible to be critical thinkers? I'll, I'll start on that if I may. 
Uh, first, I'd, I'd just like to mention that, uh, as I, I already said, 60 Minutes did a piece on fake news. And what really surprised me, although I shouldn't have been surprised, is that it is being treated as fake news. And then, in fact, several websites are now uh, touting that piece by uh, Scott Pelley as mm -hmm. being fake news, one of which has, in fact, um, almost 300,000 hits. Mm -hmm. um, it is a website by Mark Dice. Um, there's another one by L.A. Werewolf Entertainment, and then a third one, Lionel Nation, all of whom are actually calling that story fake news and using the very techniques that the story used to generate it as fake news, which I just, I just think the irony of that is, is quite extraordinary. Um, but Not to interrupt, Averill, but I will say while we're on the point, because it's a point I want to make, is that CBS, uh, that um, segment is online, and I think it is a, a must view for anybody in interested. It's and a I had really a very hard time finding it. In fact, I was only able to find a clip of it right. because these fake news exactly. pieces actually overload the, exactly overload right. the, uh, the so top I just, of the I, The clicking. irony of that I thought was just quite, yeah, very interesting. So I'm hoping that the full version will come out soon um, in defeat of that, but the, certainly 60 Minutes must be um, fascinated with the irony of, of how that's happened. Um, so the three, there's three things that I really do on a very, very routine basis um, in order to combat fake news. And, and I hate to use a war metaphor and say combat, more maybe manage it, because it certainly, as you were just saying, Leslie, it, we all have experienced information overload every day. Um, and certainly how to manage that information overload and how to navigate that information overload um, is, is just become a routine part of life. Um, so the first thing that I do is I talk to my students about this a lot. <laughs> I talk to them about um, alternate facts, as you mentioned, that, that very interesting phrase, um, about fake news, about propaganda, um, and about the fact that Facebook content never goes away, which mm -hmm. my students are surprised by that. Um, about being, and, and excuse me, I, I'm trying to repurpose the word slut, um, about being a media slut, um, you know, consuming media from many, many different sources, um, and I, I to, you know, get yourself educated so that you can consume information responsibly. And I, I have a student here that I, in a minute I'd like to ask him what his opinion is about how he manages, um, how he manages to navigate information literacy. But so the first thing I do is talk to students on a daily basis. The second thing is use technology to engage students in researching, verifying, and or denying the truthfulness of anything that they hear. I, I encourage my students not to believe one word I tell them mm -hmm. until they themselves d determine what is the validity of what I'm saying. And then the third thing is teach students how to identify and verify valid and reliable sources by doing it in every class, by role modeling it with all of the material that I present to them sourcing everything and explaining about how to determine the quality of sources. And, and again, um, Tom, our librarian, has provided some really great specific information from, for example, Harvard and a variety of sites about how exactly do we discern between a good website and a bad website, between a good journal article and one that is not as, as well-founded. And I, I like your conception about how it should be a continuum, because clearly there, things are are you know there's degrees of fakeness and I and I, I really 
really um, like that you mentioned uh, mentioned that approach. And so I have a student here today. His name is Antonio Pinelli, uh, and actually he was researching this idea of fake news for a research project for my class. And he helped me thinking about what kind of how you define fake news. Um, he is a freshman, and he's a political science major. And on the way over, I was asking him what he thought about how to um, manage this this idea of all the information and fake news. Um, Antonio, would you share with us what you said? Yeah, I would like to just give the point when, whenever you're consuming news online or wherever you are getting your information from, always be as open-minded as possible, but also be a little skeptical and, you know, mm -hmm. don't take anything as fact until you do your own research on it. And I was talking with Tom, the librarian, a little bit before the podcast started, and what we came to the general uh, agreement is that finding the truth takes time and effort if you're not willing to put the time in to really get the actual facts then you shouldn't even be sharing the information at all uh, like i said on a walk over here um, i believe that it's your civic duty as a, a person in this country to not share information until you completely know where it came from who the source is um, who's behind it and if it is fact uh, first and foremost so that's just something i always like to Keep in mind when I'm, um, you know, browsing the internet for news or, or watching news on the TV. Just always keep that in mind. Thank you, Antonio. Thank you, Antonio. I look forward to hearing the results of your research project. And thank you, Averill. Other comments on on how we strategize to make sure that this is a core concept in the way we teach. I actually think that uh, as student journalists, we have a leg up on um, on this because uh, it's twofold in yeah. our. Uh, in our field, um, you not only are not, we're looking at source material to create news, and also we're looking at source material where we get the news from. So uh, there's the old adage of um, one of the many old adages of uh, for a journalist is if your mother tells you that she loves you, get that confirmed by two other sources. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, there, it's an important thing because we're, we need to, you know, we, we talk a lot about original sourcing when you're going to, you know, do you, what's, the best, what's the best source for a story? Um, you know, and there's different levels of that. So we can apply those same levels of, okay, an original source was somebody that it happened to, that they perpetrated the, whatever the act or vote was. Then there's eyewitnesses, direct eyewitnesses that were there to actually see or hear, um, to witness in some way. Then there's hearsay or, or authoritative um, voices, somebody that uh, the police or somebody that got involved um, that, that have some authority. And then there's uh, you know secondary sources, a friend told them, so they're uh, a witness to the witness. Um, basically, uh, the same um, uh, the, the same things can be uh, uh, used when you're trying to evaluate a news source as you um, uh, where the, the news is being published. You know, so if you, you I, I love what Antonio said. You know, we need to be more cynical, um, at least more critical. Uh, we need to be critical thinkers. We don't. Um, we we are in 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 the information overload uh, era. Um, we need to be uh, more critical thinkers to say, okay, there's a lot of information out there. How do I know this is from a reliable source? Is there multiple sources that I could um, test this from? 
um, how do we get our news? You know, we, there used to be gatekeepers, and uh, it's such a big issue and such an interconnected, complicated spider web. Um, you know, there, there's a, a, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone in this room or listening, uh, the uh, trust in the mainstream media is at an all-time low. Um, among uh, 18 to 29-year-olds, uh, the pre-research center recently uh, conducted a study, and the 10% um, uh, of that age group said that they had uh, a lot of trust in the media. Um, this goes to a time where you look back, not in the too, uh, not in the too distant future, where Walter Cronkite was considered the uh, most reputable man in the in the nation. Uh, you know, was, uh, almost tied with the president. Um, but uh, we need to look. At, the more information we get, the more uh, we need to look at information in a critical way. So I think that applying those. Um, same things, you know, is it a direct source uh, that's providing this information? Is there multiple sources that can confirm it? Are they reliable? Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it goes on and on. Um, uh, it's much deeper than, uh, you know, we used to say, uh, well, you know, we used to say facetiously, um, well, if it's in black and white, if it's in print, it must be true. Um, and so there were, that was a tongue-in-cheek saying, you know, that, you know, if it's there. If it's on Facebook, it must be true. It was a little scarier, you know. Um, there used to be gatekeepers that we had trust in uh, that provided news uh, and information to us. Uh, now there's no such thing as the gatekeepers. It's coming directly, you know. Um, so uh, just, you know, critically looking at uh, where is the news coming from? Can I verify it from multiple sources? And, um, you know, it, it, it even gets more complicated. You know, I know students in my class said, um, you know, jokingly one day in a casual conversation, and we, we ended up using it, somebody said um, what they did over the weekend, and a fellow student said to her, uh, no pictures, it didn't happen. You know, so now, you know, you need to see the pictures, you know, uh, or, or else it didn't happen. If you say, you know, I had this for lunch, unless you posted a picture of that, uh, it didn't happen. Now you're in a, now you're in a technolo technological age where you can, it's easy, any of us can fake a picture. You know, you can post a video and then you say, well, you know, I know um, talking to my journalism students, I'd say, okay, what makes you believe um, that a, a news source? And if they say, well, if I see a video, then I know it's true. But then I used examples of, you know, here's a video and we see something happening, but it's not what's being told. It's not the story that's being told. You know, it could be 10 years ago, you know, where you hear quotes, you know, um, quotes from somebody and it's directly from their mouth, but they were talking about something completely different. So uh, technology, trust, uh, and verification are all at an all-time low. And so that means uh, if you look at it as a scale, as that drops down, then verification, cynicism, and uh, open-mindedness, as Antonio said, need to raise up on the other side of the scale to create a balance. Excellent. Thank you, John. I think it's interesting 
the, the particular burden or responsibility that journalism, journalists and journalism students have. Uh, although I, I would also argue that as students at this university and as faculty here, we are all or become mm -hmm. producers of knowledge. So sure. we have that same level of responsibility to make sure that we build trust in the knowledge that we as faculty and students produce. And I think it's a testament to the fact that we all agree that a librarian needed to be a part of this discussion, that these are issues that work across disciplines, across the entire university and all of its units. So if you um, want to join in there, Tom. Sure. Uh, information literacy is central to the work that librarians do. And I mentioned before the, the five standards. It's really, and Antonio mentioned that it takes a lot of time. It's actually quite an extensive process to go through. Um, a majority of the student, students I see in class or in individual meetings, they come to me generally to find to do work for an assignment, to find one or more peer-reviewed articles. And this is a good place to touch, to jump off from talking about peer-reviewed articles to the other types of materials that might be out there. So what I like to do is give an, an idea of the information landscape, because a lot of times students don't know exactly where they're looking. You can envision maybe just an ocean of, you just can look at the surface and you don't know what's below the surface, but there's all sorts of organisms below the surface. And you need particular organisms in order to um, <clears throat> answer your questions. So, for example, people might want to just go to Google and start searching, and you're going to get millions of results that are unfiltered. There's all sorts of different types of information in there. So I'd like to teach them a little bit about the information landscape, the differences between peer-reviewed and scholarly information and popular information, the difference between a primary article and a secondary article, mm -hmm. the types of information resources. So you might have journals, you might have magazines, and there's a, quite a difference between what you might have in there because the journals will be peer-reviewed by experts in the field and the popular sources might have an editor who may be very smart and have a lot of good ideas but may have bias, may not be an expert in the field. I'll use the, the Wikipedia as an example because students find things in Wikipedia and I tell them, you know, you might find some good information in Wikipedia, but you're not going to use that in your paper. No, so, hopefully they won't. <laughs> no. So Leslie was talking about students becoming producers of information, so it's important that they start writing about things, start presenting information, but when they have their sources, they've got to find reliable sources. So we steer them towards the academic databases that we have here. Uh, there's a lot of work involved in that, because they have to learn how to manipulate the databases, to do searches, things of that nature. Uh, and then they have to learn, they also have to find, learn to, how to get the actual articles. They have to learn when they're writing these things, they have to learn when they can quote, what they have to do for quoting, and also how to cite in the proper format. So there's also other things involved with ethics, copyright, plagiarism, citations, and costs of these things that I like to make students aware of. And this entire process, I generally have a class that may go 45 to 50 minutes if a faculty member, they come over to the library and we work in the lab so that I can do an introduction and demonstration and then they can actually do some work finding articles and then talk about what they found. And, and <clears throat> that gives them a sense of co something concrete that they have uh, completed. Um, plagiarism is really important that they are aware that when they are writing, that they've got to actually look for a source and find their own ideas. They can use what other people have, have said, but they've got to take, you know, if they come up with an original idea, good, but if they're using other people's ideas, they've got to cite that, and then they have to put it in, the, in their references. I also like to make them aware they're really surprised sometimes at the cost of some of these things. They're very expensive to get. 
um, the databases. So we steer those, to, you know, students to those databases. Uh, thank you. Um, and I, I wanted to point out, and you can uh, you can verify this, Tom, that in fact uh, the library liaison here at all of the liaisons here at Western Connecticut State University are a resource for faculty and students, and that any of us have an opportunity to um, go over to the library and use librarians as resources to to teach about this topic and the strategies for uh, working through the issues that, that it um, poses. Uh -huh. And the things that we teach about reviewing things, about finding peer-reviewed articles, those are the things that they have to apply then on their own when they go out and, and do their work. So if they're looking, if they're on Facebook or Twitter or wherever they are, they have to take those authentication tools that they learn. They've got to look at the authors, the publications, the relevancy to the, to the actual news item, for example. Um, they have to look at these things and, and to verify. One of the difficulties that I face with students is that these days they really want to do their research exclusively online and having them use the databases, which for me are such a beautiful, rich resource uh, to them are maybe not as much, they're much more interested in images and in videos um, and in websites. And so one of the things in talking to students is how do you discern between a good website and a bad website because it surprises me that they are so much more immersed in technology and have used it their entire lives and yet don't aren't as discerning with websites. And so some of the materials actually that Tom that you provided about how do you tell a good source from a bad source if it is online. Um, and one of the things is you, you need to look at the dot, you know, is it is it dot com? Is it dot, you know, what what are and, and you know, is it dot slow? Is it dot co? Oh, which, in fact, for my research for this, I learned that dot co is Columbia actually. So if it's a dot com dot co, that's actually a Colombian website. No offense to the Colombians. Um, and if there's URLs. Click on them and also go always, and I do this particularly with organizations that send me announcements, for example, about internships. I go to the website, I look at the About Us, I try to find where their funding source is, I, and if there is not a specific name, a specific date, a specific ground address, then I don't give it any credit. Um, and check, check all of the links, you know, ch look at visual clues, are there pictures that just are not quite right? Is there anything about it that just doesn't quite feel right? Uh, one of the authors talked about the aesthetic of it. Are there typos? You know, are there grammatical errors? Um, and you know, it, it put it in your browser and does it work? Um, you know, so is there anything about it that feels suspicious? Are there any links with it that don't go anywhere? Um, interestingly, I was at the UN website the other day and they actually had a link that didn't go anywhere. And I thought, ooh, ooh, because I love the UN website and I use it for a huge amount of information, but just that feeling that it's not, and so the UN website, obviously I trust enormously and it's such so complex that it, it explains that. Um, um, but I was on another website yesterday that I clicked to a link and it went to something that said service not found and I thought okay that you know that makes me nervous so just kind of assessing absolutely everything about it um, how does it feel what does it look like every single thing and be in order to be really discerning um, about some of these these websites and and uh, what what kind of information that they're providing 
Yeah, I, I teach public history here, so <clears throat> excuse me, I'm battling a cold. And um, and there are concrete examples. I, you know, students. I have students evaluate websites according to a rubric uh, every time I teach. And you know, one of the examples I use, and I have them walk through this process, is if you type Martin Luther King into without the junior within into a Google search, either the third or fourth. Um, page down, you click on it, and it goes to a white supremacist website. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, the ability to evaluate the information in that website um, is crucial to the maintenance of our democracy. Right? Absolutely. I try to get it really down, uh, uh, down to the basics as much as possible, and maybe I oversimplify it. But you know, I try to tell students if you are, um, if you want to hear. Um, the history of Western Connecticut State University. Would you go to my cousin Jimmy, or would you rather go to Paul Steinmetz or you know Dr. Clark or somebody who works for the university? And You'd have to meet your cousin Jimmy. Exactly, but you know, <laughs> what, there you we it's innate. You know, we don't need to be taught what uh, you know expert opinion is. Uh, you know, informed uh, authorities are. Uh, we know, you know, you wouldn't go to somebody on the street to find out um, random information, you know, specific information. You wouldn't go to a random person to find out specific information. The same should be applied to um, when you are um, looking for, you know, some kind of authoritative uh, label to put on a website or, you know, the other thing is, is I think that we need to maybe, and maybe Leslie, one of your questions will be there, is that, you know, there's different, diff different types of fake news and there is you know a lot of it is intentionality um, and there are um, intentional uh, purveyors of fake news that you know and there's many reasons why they do that but then there's also uh, fake news that is unintentional um, I uh, and I think that there's uh, part of that is the race to be uh, first in getting news out um, and there's plenty of information about that. You know, I hate to, I wish the tragedy never happened, but I, I discussed the Sandy Hook shootings in my classes because uh, that first day there was so much information, misinformation across the board, um, and it was the same misinformation. And it's important for us as journalists to look at it. How did, how did everybody get the wrong, that same amount of wrong information? And the, fa the, the reason is, is because it's derivative, you know, people, you know, CNN reported something incorrectly, so then I reported it incorrectly, and then the Daily News reported it, and the AP reported it. You know, there's derivative, and there's no original sourcing there, um, you know, and uh, that, that's a, an important thing. There, but, and then there, you know, there's uh, mistakes. If you, you know, you make a mistake, then you lose credibility, and then people harp on that. But... Um, back to that, you know, 60 minutes, I think that uh, Morley Safer should be giving us money to, because we're promoting it so much. <laughs> but in that 60 minutes, you know, they, they spoke to somebody who um, just delivers fake news. It's and there's a, a million dollar a day business of just creating fake news for the sake of creating it for money. Um, there's also, you know, people that want to, there's propaganda as we talked to, there's people that want to put out uh, fake news because then if um, you don't, then you don't, then you're taking away the credibility. If people believe anything, then they tend to believe nothing. Um, you take away the credibility of it. I, I like um, 
One of uh, an author, uh, Neil Gabler, who's written a lot about um, both uh, uh, online and print and in books. Um, he says uh, that you know there are people that are. He calls it a revolution, uh, and he says that it's not the 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 fake news that's some fake news that's being um, put out there is not intended to pose an alternative truth, as if there could be such a thing, but to destroy truth altogether to set us adrift in a world of belief without facts, a world where there is no defense against lies, um, which is an interesting, you know, that intentionality, you know, that, uh, and we see it more now, you know, more and more now every day. If we have the head of our country, no matter what your political beliefs are, calling the mainstream media the enemy of the people, direct quote, and um, fake news, uh, then you know who where do we trust you know where does the where does the trust begin and the trust end where does the reputable sources um, begin and end it's a it's a challenging time I think and I think journalists play a hugely important role in that mm -hmm. who do we trust is there then uh, a sort of hierarchy of fake news to the point that you made, John, about whether or not there, you know, there were the different kinds of fake news. Is there some fake news that's more dangerous than other fake news? Well, there's some people that think that, oh, what's the harm, you know? So if, you, if we want to look in the political arena of this past uh, presidential campaign, um, which uh, I think saw fake news um, take on a whole new light and a, and a, and a whole new weight, uh, you say, what's the difference? I put out news and I wanted to, um, just like propaganda, you know, um, Ben Franklin did it, you know, to affect, uh, you know, the, the first few, uh, the, the Revolutionary War for certain and the first few uh, presidential elections. Um, what's the damage? But you talk about, um, you know, uh, Pizzagate, as it's come to be called, you know, there was an intentionally uh, false news report that put put out that said, Hillary Clinton and her inner circles uh, were, were working in cahoots with the owner of a pizzeria in Washington, uh, Comet Ping Pong and Pizza. Oh, let's not name them. Okay, sorry. They've and had enough trouble exactly, from this fake news. Exactly. Um, I'm happy to say that they're still in business. Uh, and you say, what's the harm in fake news? Well, somebody, another citizen, heard it, picked up a... Uh, a, a, a rifle went there to try to rescue these. Yeah, um, Edgar Walsh. I don't mind naming him. Edgar okay. Walsh, excuse me. Okay. Um, went there, uh, shot into the front of the pizzeria to try to uh, r save these um, sex trafficked minors. Um, what's the damage of fake news? Well, there's one instance, you know, where it could have been much, you know, could have been deadly. Um, you know, so it's not just swaying political opinion. It is um, putting people's lives in, in danger, I think, you know. Yeah, I suspect, Avril, you want to add to that as a political scientist. Yes, I think the ultimate outcome of this election and how much fake news had a, had a role in it is, is going to be debated for some time to come, but also is yet to be seen. Um, a few of the things that are clear, Pew Research from May of 2016 said that 44% of Americans get their news from Facebook. And by population, 67% are getting their news from social media in general. Um, and a, um, an evaluation of the news stories that were generated during the election cycle um, did seem to have quite a bit of an inf impact. In fact, uh, people, the, the stories that were on social media were viewed 
or engaged, which is an interesting term for shared or forwarded, um, uh, were uh, shared or reacted to or commented on um, 10 times, some I've read 20 times, as much as the mainstream news outlets. And so the impact of these stories on Facebook, uh, sites like Facebook, that were um, one of the exclusive sources of news for so much of the population and that were believed more than credible news stories um, did have an impact. The, the level of impact is something we don't know. I personally feel that, it, I suspect that the impact was quite substantial. Um, and interestingly, the Russian role in that, um, which was has recently been very, uh, very widely reported by CBS News, by the Huffington Post, Senator Mark Warner um, of the Senate Intelligence Committee discussed that they there were between 1,000 and 1,500 Russian operatives who were operating specifically in markets in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin um, uh, within the few days and the, and the weeks and months before the election. And they were literally taking over um, feeds. They're calling them internet trolls. They took over feeds from vendors and generated and planted fake news stories. Um, in these very specific markets in order to increase divisiveness, and it was a, it was a nail-biter election. Um, there's no doubt that it was a nail-biter, and how much these types of things have had an impact um, there is some politics to this that, in fact, the, the administration that has won feels that it did not have a very big impact, whereas the candidate who lost feels that it did. I think the time will tell on that, and my suspicion is it had a larger role than any of us would like to think, um, and that our democracy is vulnerable in this way. Which means that it's even a, a greater responsibility for all of us to make sure that this is a part of, of what we teach and what we focus on in our classrooms. Yeah. I think we need to teach a mindset to have people adapt a mindset to everything that they look at in the news that they question, if the old bumper sticker question authority comes to mind. The, um, <clears throat> the, the, the social media is just is instantaneous information. It, it hasn't been out there, it hasn't been verified. You should question every time you see that in social media. Uh, when you read newspapers, that's relatively new information as well. And I think we need to teach students to investigate things as we would with a peer-reviewed journal, to look at the author, to look at the publication, and to wait for other people to comment on things, to verify things before they go spewing things off. I also think, uh, going back to one of the points that Antonio made, and thank you for joining us today, Antonio, uh, was um, approaching things with an open mind. I think uh, too often we approach things with closed-mindedness, and we can talk about confirmation bias, especially in the news. I have an opinion, uh, I have a position, and then I'm going to seek out the news that or other resources that will underscore my position, my belief, instead of saying, uh, I, gee, that's interesting, let me find out more about it. Um, what we tend to say now, uh, and I know I'm overgeneralizing, is, gee, that's interesting. Let me find uh, resources that support exactly what I'm saying, you know? Um, and we see it with that, whether it's a, with the particular newspaper that we read, the particular uh, news station that we watch. Um, they're going, it's going to agree with, you know, where it's going to um, underline, uh, instead of open, opening our minds, it's um, keeping our minds further, further, uh, closed further, um, but with uh, more so-called reliable sources to uh, back up our opinion. 
that we're looking for verification of what we already believe correct instead of being open correct to. we've covered a lot of ground are there other comments before we close that any of you would like to make well i'm going to go back to the thing about the um the time the challenges that we have uh i believe here at westcon we have an opportunity in our classes both in the subject classes and in the library to educate illustrate how to find information review information and think about it critically um, in the library as i said usually classes are about 45 minutes sometimes i might get in rare occasions up to 75 minutes where i can actually work in a greater greater detail with people and i like them that they can come into the lab and do a search and go through that process um, another thing that is a challenge is getting I think getting students to want to actually come in and investigate. If students come in to see me, they either do, they might do so on their own, or they might do so because it's a requirement. And I'm not sure how to fix this, but the ones who do it as a requirement, it's hard to get a sense that they actually want to be there. I'm not sure how to change that. Where they come in, they, they need to check something off that they did and not think critically about how they go about the process. So they might come in and I'd like them to stay for 20 minutes to an hour and they want to be out in five or 10 minutes because they have something else they have to do. I think it gets back to the social media, similar to social media, that it's so quick that they have the information and then it's on to something new. I'm not sure how to remedy that, but I think it's a problem. I, I agree. I think that, um, that there's something that I t uh, stress to my students. I'm actually a, a guest speaker came, uh, a, a, a reporter for, and former editor for the New York Times uh, came to speak to uh, my journalism students, Christopher Melly, and he put it in a way that uh, I think was excellent. Uh, he said, you know, talking about this this rush to to get out there right first, um, as uh, to you know get it get it up online, get that story up online. Right. It's not limited to students. This rush. Right. Yeah. But his his uh, his way of saying it was first be right, then be first. And I think that that could be applied not only to journalists looking at new, looking into how um, to find a story, but also to us as as if you know as as um, consumer of the news and as sharers of the news. You know, you see it on Facebook again, oversimplifying. You see it on Facebook. Somebody will post, you know, oh, you know. Uh, you know, uh, oh God, Paul Newman just died. I, you know, it just came up. Paul Newman died. I don't know how my life will ever be the same. And then they post a, a you know, a story from the New York Times. Well, it's a real story. Um, unfortunately, it was 10 years ago. Um, and you know, if your life is never going to be the same, maybe you should have read the dateline at the, you know, at, that the story is. But you know, I, I like that. I think that it is across disciplines. I think that. Um, you know, in, instead of trying to be first, let's let's try to be right. Let's try to have some truth behind us, some fact base behind us. I would like to invite Antonio. Do you have any uh, last advice for your fellow students, Antonio? Um, the only advice I would have is in the future. You know, um, whenever you're whenever you are approached with news that you may not fully understand, uh, I, I invite you to you know get the full context behind the story and then do some more research instead of just doing research with, you know, a, a maybe a bit confusion behind what you're doing. So um, I would, I would you know, hope people would do that and instead, like, like you just said, you know, be right first and then be right. 
you know, get, get the context first, get the general gist of all the information, and then go on and, you know, do some more research on your, by yourself. So. Great point, Anthony. Thank Absolutely. you. Sorry. Be your, take the time to be your own best fact checker. And mm -hmm. there are some really great fact checker sites out there. There's Snopes, there's PolitiFact, there's factcheck.org, there's Hoaxlayer, uh, the Washington Post has a fact checker. Um, you don't allow these fact checkers to do your work for you, but on the other hand, take the time, uh, as Antonio mentioned, and put in the effort to uh, fact check. Yeah, those, those are all great tools. Well, I, I can't thank all of you enough for being here today. I want to just repeat that this and all podcasts will be posted to SoundCloud, to iTunes, in CELT's Media Space Library, and all of those will be linked to the CELT website. Um, there'll be a comments um, function open. Uh, so that you are, the listeners today are welcome to comment on the content of this in any podcast. Um, in addition, you know, feel free to send your comments to me by email as CELT director, that's L at wcsu.edu. Uh, and if you'd like to see this as a face-to-face -face workshop, we'd be happy to accommodate that as well. Um, so again, thank you all for joining me today. Thank this you, has Leslie. been terrific. Thank, thank you, Leslie. Leslie. What a very important topic this is. Thank you so much.